Hi, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh, and I'm here with Dr. Scott. Hey, Dr. Scott. Hello, Dr. Shiloh. Good morning, and welcome back. <laughs> yes, I was just saying, good to see you after this last weekend in Auburn, Washington. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yes, we get a break from the Southern California weather very, very far to the north to the shady, cool Twin yep. Peaks atmosphere that you <gasps> so love. Yes. How did you know? I actually have a very brief Twin Peaks reference in this episode. Really? Today. Yes. Very yes. cool. I love the Pacific Northwest. It's like my happy place. Yeah. That's where my family is from. So. Same here. All right. So just housekeeping off the top, as we told you in the last episode, we have a date for our October watch party. We are going to watch Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. <sighs> <laughs> which we, you know, I feel like we always promise watch parties and then we never follow through. And it's been, I think it's been almost a year since we it's did our been last almost one. a year, but we've done it. We've done what two or three very successfully yeah. that turned out. Well, that was a lot of fun. We did a, a noir film. We did Chicago. We did Bonnie and Clyde. I think Bonnie and Clyde was the last one we did. Yeah. So here are the instructions for how this is going to go. And I'm going to put this in the show notes as well as you'll be able to find it on our social media and on our website. So if you need to refer back to how I'm going to sort of explain this, look at all those places on our website. It's going to be under the tab that says live events. So the watch party is going to be Friday, October 21st at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What you have to do basically is access Amazon video on a desktop browser. It will work on a laptop, but not tablets or phones. You don't have to download anything just as long as you have access to Amazon video. We all need to rent the film because it's not free, even with the Amazon Prime membership, and it's $3.99 in the US. So do this beforehand, but don't start watching. Don't press the watch button or give yourself a few minutes before we jump on to watch it together to rent it. And then you will click on a link that actually I provide for you. So I'm going to provide the main link, which will start the watch party, but you will have to have rented the film already. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> and this, again, this will be outlined in instructions. Yes. And just be aware for our listeners outside the country, you know, it, it's going to vary from country to country, whether or right. not you can access this film. The good thing is, as I've mentioned in the past, this is a exploitation film yep. from the early 60s. It's so old that most likely the rights will be available to every country that is willing to watch this with us. So yes. That'd be yes. Cool. So 15 minutes before the start time of our watch party, I will start the party, which means people can start logging on. I will post the link that you need to log on to all three of our social media outlets. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, as well as it will go on that live events page on our website. So that's what you will need to access this and be on there with us. I'll start the film. We can all watch at the same time. We'll use the chat feature. Scott's really great at throwing in some trivia about the film and the actors. So I will task you again with that, Dr. Scott. I can't wait. That's one of my favorite parts, especially for movies <laughs> People like love this. It. <laughs> it's these th this movie, I promise you, is so over the top and silly, wonderful, Southern Gothic and noir. Can't I can't wait for everybody to see it. What, but let me give a sort of a review of last week's episode. Last week's episode was LA Not So Confidential episode 112. It was seasonal affective disorder. We took a little bit of a departure from our usual types of episodes for a couple of reasons. We wanted to talk about some legal issues related to the expression of depression. Right. And we also wanted to kind of give people a heads up that like we're moving into holiday season yes. and to be prepared for all the emotions that come with it. There's a lot of expectations that we build up around the holidays. Indeed. And sometimes that has a backlash 
to us emotionally when it doesn't really meet the standards of what we expect. And neurologically and chemically, there are people like myself that are affected by shifts in the weather. So you got to get some of that information. If you didn't have a chance to listen to it, please download it and give it a listen when you get a chance. Yeah, I think we've had listeners write in and ask us to cover depression before. And we kind of think, well, gosh, that's so basic, you know, in a way that doesn't really fit with the style of our show. But I think this was a good way to capture it, especially knowing we were going to the Pacific Northwest and kind of it being that typical thing that people think about seasonal affective disorder in those environments. And the tie-in with crime was surprising. Right. So hopefully you'll have a chance to listen to that. Yes. Okay. So let's get into our vintage crime for today. This is the murder of Elvis Shue. And today we have a paranormal vintage murder episode for you. And it's spooky season. We have to, right? (laughs) It is. And not just that, but I thought we needed a little palate cleanser from the Los Angeles child murder train that we've been on. Like... (laughs) I'm really actually starting to believe that in the 20s and 30s, it was just murderesses and child murders in Los Angeles. Good point. So this case is really old. It's from the late 1800s. It doesn't even take place in Los Angeles. And I got the idea from one of my favorite places to get ideas from the TV show Drunk History. (laughs) So what could go wrong? So just again, this is a little lighter in a sense, but we are going to talk about murder. We are going to make mentions of brief intimate partner violence. So just trigger warnings for you guys. But Scott, why don't you get us started? Thank you. Erasmus and Elvis Shue lived in a log house in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. They were newlyweds of only three months and Erasmus, who had a nickname of Trout, was known to be a little bit of a drifter and he was employed as a blacksmith with a very shady past when it came to women. Elva Zona Haster Shoe was born in 1873 in West Virginia and reportedly did not do anything very notable until she married Erasmus. Wow, that's a lovely way to describe somebody. <laughs> I know. When you look back in those historical documents, it's like no notable history. Literally she was just said being that. a woman, all of her yeah, duty, you know, you know. chain her to the stove. Anyway, Erasmus was at work on the afternoon of January 23rd, 1897, when he sent his neighbor's 11-year-old son to his house to check and see if Elvin needed anything from the market before he started back to his house from work. The boy walked into the home and immediately stumbled on Elva, who was lying at the bottom of the stairs. How familiar does that sound in the true oh, crime sphere, right? just wait. <laughs> so the boy tried calling out to her, and when she didn't respond, he ran home to tell his mother. His mother summoned the local medical doctor and coroner, George W. Knapp. The boy had reported that Elva's body was face up with her legs straight out. She had one arm resting on her chest and the other was at her side, her head resting to one side. She was only 22 years old. So it took over an hour for the coroner to arrive. And before then, Erasmus had arrived home. And did he guard and preserve the scene, do you think? No. He carried her upstairs, washed her body, and then redressed her. And not only did he redress her, he dressed her for her funeral with a high neck dress and a veil over her face. Hmm. Yeah. And so the coroner is trying to do his examination and they have her laid out in one of the bedrooms. And the entire time the coroner is trying to examine her body, Erasmus is cradling his wife's head, sobbing over her. And strangely, he gets very irate when Knapp tried to examine her head and neck area. This is where we say, don't be suspicious. Don't be <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> so it turns out that Elva had actually been under the care of the doctor coroner in recent weeks. Some records indicate, quote, female troubles, but he 
attributes her death to, are you ready for this? Everlasting faint. Oh my God. I, I have to say that is pretty screwed up because that's another one of those sort of leftovers from Victorian causes of death yes. or, you know, wandering uterus or flying uterus. I'll have to look that one up. What would did everlasting faint mean? Do I feel like everybody who dies has everlasting faint. Oh, so you faint, but it just, okay. And then you don't <laughs> you ever just don't come back. Up. Okay, well. But wait, I mean, he eventually ends up changing the cause of death to complications from pregnancy. Hmm. So this actually may have been why he was treating her before her death was for a pregnancy. But essentially, we have a dead woman at the bottom of the stairs who's newly married, possibly pregnant, and has a husband who won't let her neck be examined. Well, clearly the owl did it. <laughs> clearly. Clearly. <laughs> you know I'm team owl. Don't mess with my emotions, Scott. <laughs> All right. So fast forward to the funeral, and Elva was buried in her childhood hometown of Little Sewell Mountain, West Virginia. So this is the scene that kind of feels like it was taken from Twin Peaks. Erasmus was acting very strangely, pacing around during the funeral. It was an open casket service and he kept like messing with a scarf that was around her neck, although it didn't match the dress that she was wearing for her funeral, the one he had dressed her in after her death. He insisted to family and friends that it was her favorite scarf, and that's why he wanted her buried in it. He also propped her head up a bit with different items and you know, most people were just kind of brushing it off as a newlywed husband grieving his beloved wife. Anyway, there weren't reports that he was a dislikable guy from around town. But, you know, this is something you and I always talk about, the various ways in which people react in trauma and in grief. But clearly this, to steal one of your terms, was very notable, at least. I think that's a good point. However, another direction that we point to in situations like this is looking at how much time has passed and how much is lost to history. So the oh, yeah. fact that they're saying that he's not a dislikable guy doesn't mean that he wasn't weird and weird people do weird things. Or let me say something that's maybe less offensive is eccentric people do eccentric right. things. And do people know that that's what you're supposed to do when you come home and and find? I mean, I'm, I'm not really playing devil's advocate, but I'm just saying that someone who is completely unprepared for this kind of tragedy at a young age might very well think, I don't want anyone to see her looking this this right. way. It's embarrassing. I'm going to clean her up, but I'm going to move away from devil's advocacy. And clearly if he's hiding her neck, I mean, come on, right? Yeah. So look, the only person that didn't really care for Erasmus was Elva's mother. And her name was Mary Jane Hester. She was immediately suspicious of all these circumstances around her daughter's death. And it was reported that she had taken one of the pieces of cloth that was propped under Elva's head in the coffin and washed it. It turned the water pink, and that's when she first began to suspect that Elva was murdered. Although, of course, blood could have been from any wound due to the fall, I guess. But it is reported that she prayed for Elva to give her some kind of indication of how she died from beyond the grave. Ooh. So... I know. Well, according to Mary Jane, that's exactly what happened. She reported that four nights in a row, Elva came to her while she was asleep. And she explained that in this dream, Elva's spirit appeared as a bright light and then took a human form. Elva's ghost told her mother that Erasmus had been physically abusive during their short marriage. The night before her body was found, he attacked her in a rage because he thought that she hadn't made any what? Dinner. His dinner wasn't there for him. Was it hot? It's even more specific that she hadn't made any meat for his dinner. <laughs> oh, boy. 
Elva's spirit said Erasmus had broken her neck, and as she relayed this information, the ghost turned her head completely around to demonstrate, you know, like death becomes her style or, <laughs> or the exorcist style. Yep. Mary Jane said that Elva's ghost then turned and walked away, disappearing into the night. Now, that's interesting. So if her head turns all the way around, does that mean that she's walking away from her, but her head is still but looking her at her? <laughs> Oh I don't God. know. That would be horrifying. That would be As horrifying. As if it's not horrifying enough. Yes. Right. So Mary Jane marches down to the prosecutor's office and pleads with him to reopen the case based on her ghost dream story, which I think takes some nerve to just kind of go with that. The prosecutor, though, at least entertains her enough to start asking some more questions around town. He learns of the strange behavior at the funeral, and then he goes and talks to Dr. George Knapp to ask about the coroner examination. And Knapp admits that he wasn't able to do a thorough job of examining the body because of Shu's behavior. So the prosecutor orders the body exhumed for a full autopsy. The Greenbrier Independent, which is a newspaper, reported that Shu, quote, vigorously complained about the exhumation and at one point stated that he knew he would be arrested, but, quote, they would not be able to prove I did it. So Dr. Knapp, along with two other medical doctors, performed an exhumation and examination of Elva's body, this time finding distinctive finger marks on her neck, indicating that she had been strangled. Now, additionally, her neck was so dislocated between the first and second vertebrae that the ligaments were torn and ruptured and the windpipe had been crushed in the front of the neck. So obviously this makes it a homicide, right? However, there was no additional evidence or witnesses. Of course, Shu's behavior was suspicious, but guess who was also briefly considered a suspect? Her mother, because she had come up with this wild story as to how it was done. Perhaps she did it and was framing the husband that she didn't really like very much for the crime itself. Seems like a pretty far way to go to take your daughter out because you don't like her husband. Yeah, I was just going to say. So the turning point for looking at Shu, though, was his history of behaviors. The prosecutor does some more digging and learns that Shu had been married twice before. His first wife divorced him when he was doing time for stealing a horse. And she had reported to police that Shu was violent with her during the time that they were married. While in prison... Shu also boasted that he planned to marry seven women in his lifetime. So I guess that was a life goals for him. And then his second wife dies mysteriously after only eight months of marriage. I couldn't find any more information on this. There are reports that he was strongly suspected in her death, but could never be charged. So all of this circumstantial info, along with Mary Jane Haster's ghost dream, was enough for the prosecutor to arrest Shu. And... He sounds guilty, but this is also sounding like a pretty weak case to me. Thankfully, Mary Jane ended up being able to testify, and although the prosecution wanted to stay away from the ghost story, the defense was able to question her extensively about it, likely to try and discredit her in front of the jury and the other attendees at the trial. But she maintained her belief. She maintained the story. She was steady in her belief and actually asserted in her testimony that it was not a dream, that she was awake and Elva came to her. So here's a portion of her testimony as it appeared in the newspaper, The Greenbrier Independent. It was no dream. She came back and told me that he was mad she didn't have no meat cooked for supper. She came four times and four nights. But the second night, she told me her neck was squeezed off at the first joint, and it was just as she told me. And was this not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? No, sir. It was no dream. 
for I was wide awake as I ever was. She wore the very dress she was killed in. And when she went to leave me, she turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. Then you insist that she actually appeared in flesh and blood to you upon four different occasions? Yes, sir. So this actually worked in the prosecution's favor. The jury ate it up, seeing her as a credible, honest woman. And then another newspaper, the Baltimore American, had to say this. The principal evidence was that of Shu's mother-in-law, who testified that her daughter's spirit had come to her at a seance and said Shu had killed her by breaking her neck. All of the other evidence was purely circumstantial. Okay, so now away from the cue, this is me. Uh, clearly, some more confusion or miscommunication about how this happened as the article noted a seance. Yeah. But yes, you were right when you were doing your research. There definitely was more of a belief in this type of interaction at this time in history. It was a very big time in the spiritual movement within the U.S., especially in that area of the country. That's what I was thinking, you know, because you put on your hat of now and you're like, how would this ever be testimony that would be entertained? Or how would a prosecutor even kind of reopen a case based on this? But I was thinking along the lines of, okay, you know, there was some more stock given to this at the time, at least of curiosity. So I can see the jury really eating it up and kind of running with it. I don't know if this newspaper ended up just getting the story wrong that the mother had tried to summon Elva in a seance, or if they got that twisted from her just saying that she was praying that she would come tell her what actually happened. So who knows? But I, I think it's like you said, it probably is wasn't so far fetched at the time that this would sort of intertwine itself with the criminal justice system. So Shu also took the stand in his own defense, but it didn't go over so well. He asked the jury to quote, look into his face and say if he was guilty. <laughs> so the Greenbrier Independent reported that this demeanor was not well received by the jury at all. And I wanted to do a little sidebar here to just kind of comment on defendants testifying in their own defense, because we see this from time to time, but not very often. But you know, how do we kind of look at that as non-defendants mm. and as just people watching this? I, I think it's natural to want to, if we put ourselves in the situation of an innocent suspect, that we would want to stand up and assert our innocence, right? If we were truly innocent. Right. So do we, we sort of project that onto other folks? The right to testify in one's own defense is a right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. However, one can also exercise the right to remain silent, which is an equally important right protected by the Constitution, but that should not be used to create any impression of guilt. In other words, the fact that a defendant does not testify cannot and should not be held against them in court. And I think that part is generally understood by the public, don't you? That like, okay, just because this person isn't testifying, it doesn't mean they're guilty. I don't know. I mean, I think really? that that's, that's actually pretty, that's a really good discussion point to have at this time in history, because politically right now, there's a lot going on at the federal level of people asking who knew what at what time Ooh, and yeah. tons of people being brought on the stand who are politicians with very shady reputations are all pleading the fifth. And I mean, as an observer, you know, I would say that I too myself have questions about anybody at that stature and that type of questioning scenario mm -hmm. of them withholding information like this is, I think yeah. when it's one-on-one, -on -one, when it's a criminal trial at this level, it's a little bit different. Yes. I'd go so far as to say 
when you're looking at the desire to testify on your own behalf, I would say that primarily there is one of two drives taking effect. And one of the drives is I want to proclaim my innocence and I just want this to all get cleared up mm -hmm. and I want to help everybody and I want to be of help. And of course, the jury's going to believe me. And so I'm talking about naivete. Like yeah. that's a really naive perspective to take. And the other one is just like pure unadulterated narcissism. Sure. You know, that you are so confident in your belief, whether you're guilty or not, that you're right. going to be able to testify successfully on your own behalf. Yeah. And no one is going to be able to convince you differently, which was like a perfect example of this is Amber Heard. You know, Amber Heard could not control what she was saying on the stand. Alex Jones is doing the same thing right yes. now. Yes. Oh my God. They are just, he can't I mean, shut up. can you imagine their attorneys are just like throwing papers right. in the air virtually, really? Like, yeah. how can I, how can I defend my client? And yeah. I'm now, so I've given you two examples of on one end of the spectrum, we've got complete naivete and maybe right. a lot of people pleasing and a desire to like make things right. And then on the opposite, 180 degrees on the other side, we've got like pure narcissism. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that there can't be an overlap of those factors as for well. sure and i think so. with the narcissism traits or whatever we're going to call it those are also the people that end up defending themselves like being their own representation oh right <laughs> which is oh, a whole yeah. and other exactly and that's going to be coming example. up on our sovereign citizen episode which is going oh, to be gone right yeah right Okay, so put a pin in that, people. Anyway, as a rule of thumb, defense attorneys, they typically do advise against their clients testifying in their own defense. It's generally unnecessary. Generally speaking, it is unnecessary, and it tends to open the door to expose the client to even greater legal danger. So there's a lot that can go wrong for the defense if the client testifies, even if they're innocent. You have a whole bunch of behaviors that will automatically be the subject of judgment. We've talked about this so many times, just how you present and how it is interpreted by the people around you. There's pressure-induced nervousness, there's bad body language, there's poor judgment, poor demeanor, inability to succinctly respond to questions, all that kind of stuff. All of this can lead a jury to completely disbelieve the defendant. So once a defendant testifies, they have then waived their right to remain silent and will likely then be ordered by the court to answer questions. And if they then refuse to do so after taking the stand, it causes even more problems, right? So you were willing to talk about it here, but you're not willing to talk about it here. That's not the way the system works. It's going to work against you. Criminal trials can be very emotional for defendants who have everything to gain or lose based on the verdict proposed by the jury. And this can be very, very stressful. It can impact their behavior and their presentation as we were just talking about. So most defense attorneys will not allow a defendant to testify in his own defense unless it is absolutely necessary. Ultimately, it's the client's decision of whether or not they're going to testify. They can take the advice of the attorney or they can reject it. So going back to the notion that the defendant not testifying cannot be held against him in court, the defendant is presumed innocent regardless of whether he or she testifies. Yep. So going back to Shu, in Shu's case, the jury convicts him after deliberating for an hour and 10 minutes. He was sentenced to life in prison, but he actually dies in 1900 when an illness epidemic spread through the prison. Mm -hmm. So random question for you, Dr. Scott, how sanitary are prisons nowadays? I'm sure it was absolutely horrific in 1900 because the 1900s and turn of the century was disgusting anyway. <laughs> but just from your experience, I mean, how easily does disease spread in the systems that you worked in? 
if you can answer that. <laughs> I can. And it's, I, don't, I think it's going to be something that most people don't expect is, so I have worked in the California Department of Corrections. I also have experience visiting and working with inmates in other prisons in other states throughout the U.S. And what I'll tell you, and I've also worked in the jails. So what I'll tell you is in prison, once people are into their program, and I'm using the word program, which is your program is that you go in, you learn about how to survive prison, what you're going to do to take care of yourself. And then there's also expectations by your cellmate or your bunkmates, and you are going to adhere to them or you're going to get in a lot of trouble. You may not survive uh, if you don't adhere to So it. trouble by your peers. You'll get beaten up. I mean, you'll get beaten up or killed. Yeah, by the and one of the things that you have to do is cleanliness. So you really would not believe how clean the inmates keep their cells mm. because they actually know. And a lot of this comes down from sort of gang hierarchy. It's like, you're not going to get sick by not taking care of yourself and then get all the rest of us sick. Ah, uh, got it. And in fact, fights will come. I, when I worked in administrative segregation in the prison, I had to get into a discussion with a couple of inmates and clinicians about Selly getting into arguments because each one was accusing the other one of not keeping the cell clean enough. Interesting. So, I mean, what you generally see is that people that don't keep their area clean Mm -hmm. are people that are really on the psychopathic end of the spectrum okay. that just don't care about anything. And yeah. usually those are pretty dangerous or they're very mentally ill and they're unable. Sure. But yes, I mean, that's one of the it's big fears is how quickly illness can spread in prison. It's more likely to spread quickly in a jail setting, however, because jail is way more intense, way more highly populated, and generally has little to no access to any kind of fresh air. There is no real yeah. air circulation in jails. Well, and people are coming and going and you're literally getting people right off the street, whereas prison, they've been in a facility. That's really, really interesting. That Just the culture piece to the prisoners keeping each other in check. And I remember getting a letter from a former client who was in federal prison during COVID. And I mean, of course, that was just different altogether, being this new pandemic. And he was writing to me and telling me about the ways in which they're trying to keep them separated and how it was spreading. And But none of us knew what was happening at that time. And this was like early 2020. So, well, that's interesting that you have that story because my communication with an inmate in a prison in the South was talking about their lack of access to any kind of protective gear. They were given nothing. Oh, yeah. So no, people that, that were basically taking their extra t-shirts and they were just wrapping t-shirts around their mouths, nose, and necks oh. on their own. And then, you know, just avoiding contact. It was a real Scary. There's a real fear because there were some states that were very, very slow to pick up the mm -hmm. understanding of how severe COVID was going to be. It's fascinating stuff. And did they actually give a shit about prisoners and their health? You know, anyway. Yeah. So Mary Jane, Elva's mother, she lived until 1916. And the entire time she stuck by her story of her daughter's ghost avenging her death. And in Greenbrier County, there stands a historical marker that commemorates Elva's death and the unusual court case that followed, noting on the placard that this was the, quote, only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. It's very interesting. There's also a state highway marker several miles west of the town that neatly sums up Shu's amazing story. Turd in a nearby cemetery is Zona Haster Shue. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, 
Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verifies the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to state prison. So if we now, ever go to West Virginia, we have to go find this plaque. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I do want to say something here because, you know, I've probably brought you over to the dark side of being more interested <laughs> in such a bad stuff. Influence. <laughs> I'm a terrible influence because I, I love this stuff. But one of the things that I want to share that actually does have to do with the psych properties, since we are LA Not So Confidential, is the idea of how we define intuition. Mm. So a lot of people think that intuition is just this gut feeling that comes out of nowhere and that you're connected to information from the great beyond or from another level of being. And in a way that is true, but there is now science that helps us understand what intuition is. And intuition is the synthesis of unconsciously comprehended information. Yeah. So I'm not saying that there's not something out there that we can't measure. There may be, I, I tend to believe or want to believe that there is, and I am excited about the future when we maybe can measure this stuff. But what we do know about intuition is that you're constantly taking in information from your environment and you're processing it on an unconscious level. Mm -hmm. And clearly there are some things going on for her mom. She notices that he's not letting anyone near the neck. She's already suspicious because he's already cleaned the body. What is up with this weird scarf thing? And then yeah. seeing red come out. I mean, all four of those things are enough for her as well as information that we have no idea that she might've been exposed to formulate in her psyche, in her brain, the idea of her daughter coming back and talking to her. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it was supernatural or supernormal. It happened. She processed the information and clearly all the evidence points towards his guilt. So it sounds like justice was done in that case. Yeah. It's something that I talk about with a lot of clients who have experienced infidelity in their relationships where oh, right. they talk about, I just knew in my gut that something was off. And yep. something was telling me to investigate a little bit more. And then we start talking about these subtle micro changes in their partner's behavior that they're not even consciously aware of. But all of that then lends to what I kind of call like the woman's sixth sense, yeah. <laughs> where you're like, you know, there's a difference in your partner, but you can't articulate it. And then you're like, am I crazy? Because I'm going with this weird gut feeling. So yeah. just another example. But for this case, there, there's actually not a ton of original documentation from the story from 1897. The newspaper accounts that we pulled for this were actually pulled from other articles. I could not find even on newspapers.com articles original articles back to 1897. So folks take this with a grain of salt or maybe a circle of salt. Mm, keep yourself protected you. in <laughs> Los protected. spooky season. <laughs> so I hope everyone enjoyed a more interesting folklore tale for our vintage episode today. Thank you fun. for choosing that. I liked it. Of course. Drunk history never fails me. <laughs> exactly. So again, what have we got coming up? We've got our watch party. Very exciting. All the instructions will be posted. We'll have some other things being posted from various presentations we've been giving. That's going to be super cool. Yep. What else we got going, Dr. Shiloh? Gosh, I think that's it. You know, you and I are going to kind of look at our schedule for the rest of the year. Oh, yeah. We, we might take a little break over the holidays coming up in November and December, but not too long of a break. So don't worry. Great. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you next time on L.A. Not so confidential. Bye, folks. Bye bye.
We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled behind the couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. <laughs>